We will be in the book of Philippians again, chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 18. And if you would like to use a pew Bible, there should be one near you, and it'll be on page 981. That's 981. So I want you to think just for a minute what it would be like, okay? I want you to imagine that you are a slave, okay? You're a slave, and you have been working maybe as an indentured servant. You've been working some land for a master, when one day, the next door master comes over and he tells you, I have freed you. I have uh, bought a track of land that I am going to give you. I have provided you with a home uh, with all the, the supplies and materials you need to farm this land. And I've even given you just a little bit more cash so that everything's going to be okay for a while for you. How do you respond to something like that? How do you respond? Well, as we have been um, uh, looking into or peeking into Paul's letter to the Philippians, in some ways, this is a little bit of what lies behind the context of today's passage. Um, Paul has been reminding them of the glorious freedom that they have been given in their Redeemer. You may remember last week, beginning in verse 5, Paul says, Christ Jesus, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? Why did he come? Why did this happen? Because he wanted to set the captives free. He wanted to redeem the slave from the market of sin. He wanted to provide freedom. And how are we to, to respond to that? This is the point Paul, Jesus, and the Scriptures make. Oh, repent. Come, follow me. Don't live as orphans, but live your life for the Redeemer. Live for His Gospel. And so Paul is about to tell us to live our lives as Christians in light of the humble obedience of Christ Jesus that was displayed in His Humility and His exaltation. So let's turn in our Bibles again to Philippians chapter 2. We'll start at verse 12 and we will read to verse 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in this world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. 
Let us pray together. Father, thank you for your precious word to us. Thank you for its encouragement, its challenge. I just ask you to help us this morning to understand what your word says to us, to incorporate it into our lives, and to walk in it, Lord. I pray this in Christ's name. It is for his sake and his glory. Amen. What we see here in this passage is simply this. When we apply the gospel of salvation to ourselves with uh, the radical love, humility, and obedience of Jesus, we will stand out in the world and shine for Christ. That's basically what we see here. So let's unpack this before us in this passage this morning. We're going to focus on two points. And there's going to be all these little sub-points in those two points. But the two points we're going to focus on is working it out and secondly, shining it up. So working it out and shining it up. So as we work it out, we're looking at verses 12 through 13. The example of Christ is not only one of humility. That's, he kind of leads in the passage in his thinking. You have to have your minds like this, this humbleness that he points to Christ to. And not only um, is an example of that, but it's also an example of obedience. Of obedience. Paul's extraordinary implication then for the lives of the Philippians was that they should have such obedience. Whether Paul was with them or not, they should be living in obedience. Now this same implication obviously goes for us as well. Our justification in Christ must lead us to a change of heart and life. This is essential. Those who are in Christ and belong to Him are called to obedience. To follow Jesus is not merely to say, Hey Jesus, you're cool. You're alright with me. Jesus is just alright. No, that's not it. We are called to say, Hey Jesus, you're Lord of all. You're Lord of me. I submit to you. I submit to you. The problem that we face, though, is that the mere mention of obedience can raise the shields in our hearts and minds, can it? It can raise shields, and it can set off a cringe. Obedience? Do you remember when you were a child? Now, little Jimmy, come on now. You need to obey your dad. All right. You see what I'm saying? You remember, don't you? Some of you are now parents and you know what that's like. Some of you are grandparents and you see it still in your grandchildren, don't you? The rebellious songs of the 80s came rumbling through my mind as I was thinking about this obedience. Maybe you've heard some of these. We're not going to take it anymore. We're not. And so we're going to have to fight for our right to party, aren't we? So that we can smoke in the boys' room, right? So I fight for authority, but guess what? Authority always wins, doesn't it? Why is obedience so difficult for us? Why is that? There are multitude of reasons. There's pride. There's fear of being too exposed to an authority. Or maybe we just oppose authority and desire that independence altogether. But this all leads to the same thing, doesn't it? That in our sinful nature, we definitely prefer our autonomous control. We like to be like God. Then on the other hand, when it comes to God, 
I believe we struggle to fully trust God in His goodness and His kindness and His steadfast love toward us. So it's a complex matter, isn't it? Obedience is difficult. It is hard. And we often have attitude against it. However, I think if we look at the Greek word here, we might see obedience biblically from just a little bit of perspective that might help us. Uh, this Greek word here is hupakulo. And, and, and hupakuo is, is a word that is sometimes translated listen and respond. It's sometimes translated submit. Here it's translated obedience. You see the difference in nuance, though, that how you can translate that word. That's why I love translation work because it's tricky. It's like, how do I communicate what we see in the Greek text as we read all these Greek texts? How do we kind of see how the word works, how it's used in context, and how would we translate that word here? So this word could be actually translated with this idea of listen and respond. And, 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 and if we look at it that way, it can almost be this shields down sort of approach to it. And what do I mean by that? Well, here's the thing. To obey, whether it's scripturally, and I think this applies to children obeying your parents. I think it applies to us obeying the Lord. To obey is not meant to be a painful and exasperating situation. It is meant to be good and even beautiful. It is meant to be a happy submission to a faithful and good God. It is saying in your heart... Something like this, Lord, you love me. I know you love me. And I trust that you love me. And so I want to live in your joy and embrace your care for me because I know that you love me deeply. And so here the Lord is calling us to obey him in this way. And so I want you to get that. I want you to understand that. Maybe if we looked at obedience in that way to where it's more of a, I know you love me, Lord. I know you care for me. I know you want the best for me. And so I gladly submit to you. If we looked at it in that way, we would be better off, wouldn't we? To obey with a loved and happy heart. <laughs> Parents will often say, you know, obey with a happy heart. But scripturally, I think it may be even more nuanced, obey with a loved and happy heart. Moving on then, Paul is saying to the Philippians, you have known this happy obedience. That's what he says. You've known this. You've walked in this. You've done this. You have responded to God's love and faithfulness already. So in light of that, more so work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. Work out here is another uh, word we want to look at. It is the main verb here in the passage, and it's important that we understand what this means in context, thus in connection between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Understand that the text does not say this. Work for your salvation. Acquire your salvation. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, you already have salvation, so now pull your boots up. Pull your loins up. Get to work. That's not what it says. It does not say, let go and let God. 
ride out the wave of the Spirit, dude, and let go and let God. It doesn't say that. Scripture teaches over and over that salvation is by grace alone. Do you remember Paul's words in Ephesians? For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this, none of your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no man may boast. So what does Paul mean here then? What does he mean? We go to our friend, our great friend, Sinclair Ferguson, and this is what he says. Listen, Paul is not talking here of any good works we may contribute to our salvation, but about how we are to respond to the salvation which is already ours in Christ. We are not to work for it or work it up. You see that a lot of t- lots of times, you know, in, in like conferences and stuff. You got to work it up, work it up, work it up. Drives me crazy. He says it is not to work for it or not to work it up, but to work it out. That is to make sure that its influence and implications permeate the whole of our lives. He continues, verse 12 could be rendered, continue to work out your salvation. It's a lifetime process of of obedience, which we see the significance of what Christ has done for us. So what Ferguson is reminding us here, and he's pointing to here, is this passage is really about sanctification. And how do we define sanctification? The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines it this way. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace by which we are renewed throughout in the image of God and are enabled more and more to die to sin and to live for righteousness. So the Greek word for workout is, a, is rich in the nuance of preparing, um, bringing about, producing. And so you get to see this even in the way Paul communicates it in different ways. Uh, You may remember in Galatians where he talks about the fruits of the Spirit. Even in Philippians earlier in chapter 1, he talked about being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. It is fruit producing, fruit bearing as we hold on in Christ and the Holy Spirit. You can even look at it like one of those math problems. You've probably seen uh, the commercials or maybe even a picture uh, on the internet of you know, these big, huge, huge, huge boards where um, the guy has a piece of chalk and he's going all the way across this huge board. He's working out this gigantic math problem. That's the idea. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's what he is looking at here. Work it to completion. When will it be complete? When Jesus comes back or we go to meet Him. One of the two. So until then, work out your salvation and fear and trembling. We'll get to a real world example of this in a moment. Um, But know here that this is what Paul desires for us. To be transformed in every aspect of our lives. Now here's the thing. If we're truly honest about this, if, if we truly think about this and we, we sort of take it into our hearts, it's really frighteningly daunting. And it is in fact to be done, as the text says, with fear and trembling. And knowledge that we live our lives before a holy God who has saved us and He loves us and He wants us to be holy as well. It's frightening. But, 
but for one thing that you see here in the passage. Look back at the passage. Verse 13. But for what? But for God. But for God. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Hear that again. But for God. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. That is unbelievable. Why is it unbelievable? This amazing truth that jumps out of the Scriptures at us should shake up our minds because um, it, 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 you know, people can't fathom what it means to live within the tension of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. And here you see man's responsibility, God's sovereignty, two verses, really one sentence right there together. And it's amazing. And so as we struggle with this in our finite minds, how might this work? How might this really work itself out? Theologian John Murray helps us here. That's just what he says. God's working in us is not suspended because we work, nor are working suspended because God works. Neither is the relation strictly one of cooperation, as if God did His part and we did our part, so that, we, uh, so that the conjunction or coordination of both produced the required result. God works in us and we also work. But the relation is this. That is because God works, we work. Because God works, we work. All working out of salvation on our part is the effect of God's working in us. Not the willing to the exclusion of the doing, and not the doing to the exclusion of the willing, but both the willing and the doing. The more persistently active we are in working, the more persuaded we may be that all the energizing grace and power is of God. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, Greg Beal, in his uh, book on uh, theology, uh, gives this kind of analogy. He says that, you know, he grew, he's up north, and he said that every once in a while, you know, as it snows, his wife will nudge him and say, you need to go out there and shovel the driveway. And it's kind of like what Jake talked about this weekend. It was kind of a funny story. Jake said every Saturday they had to get up. His dad would hand him a shovel. And he says, my neighbor's got a snowblower. And he's handing us a shovel. We had to go out there and shovel off the driveway. Well, that's what Greg Beal talks about here. Is he says, I had to go out and shovel the driveway. And I would just let it go. And my wife would look at me and say, you know, it's got time to shovel off the driveway, honey. He said, but I noticed that the man next door one day bought a snowblower. And so every, every morning it snowed, he'd be out there first thing, crack it down, blowing off that snow. He had the power behind it. And so the motivation came easy. I didn't have it because it was all about me and the shovel. I don't know if that's a good analogy or not. I like Murray's a little better, but you get the picture there, right? When we have the power behind us, to will and to do, we work. We don't just exist. We don't just sit. We don't just let go and let God. We never work for our salvation. But because of the power that He transforms us in, we work. We work. 
And isn't it beautiful? And isn't it comforting? Think about it. To rejoice in the reality that working out your salvation with fear and trembling is in light of God working in you. He is at work in you. The wonder-working power of Christ in you. Both to will and to do. So the question that we have here is we try to understand this theological concept. So what does this look like really in our daily lives? Well, that's where Paul goes next in verses 14 through 18. How does Paul challenge us to shine it up then? How does he, you know, as we're working, how do we shine up our salvation, so to speak? In verses 14 and 15, Paul says this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Interestingly, this is full of New Testament language. If you have a a Bible that has... um, uh, you know, the, the footnoted other Bible verses in there, you'll see that verse 14 and 15 contain a specific allusion to Paul's thinking on Deuteronomy 32.5. And here, instead of being God's children, the Israelites were noted as a crooked and twisted generation. Same language, blemished by sin. You see, amazingly, in the book of Exodus, the children of Israel, they're in the wilderness... And God had delivered them from their bondage and slavery to Pharaoh. They see the great power of God in the plagues. They're standing there on the beach as the the, the army of Egypt circles around them. And and the great cloud uh, comes up and protects them as they're standing on the edge. And then all of a sudden, what happens? Poof! The sea begins to part. And not only, here's the thing, you think the sea parting is, is uh, it's miraculous, but what, what is more miraculous to me is it was dry when they crossed. I mean, he dries it up as he, as he parts it. That's just incredible. And so they miraculously cross the sea. Their lives are spared from their enemies. They given, they're being given the land that, that, that God had promised to their father Abraham. And they come to this place as they're traveling in the wilderness and, and the water there was bitter, and so they named the place Mara. And then in Exodus 15, 24, this is what it says they do. People grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And it not only happens there, but it happens again, and again, and again. I think it's in uh, Numbers 11, they're going... Um, We're hungry. We need some meat. We're tired of this manna that you provide us. Grumble and complain. They grumbled over the water. They grumbled over Moses. They grumbled over the meat. They grumbled over the elders who were appointed to be their spiritual representatives. They grumbled and ultimately they questioned God. After seeing His great power. Our complaints always are traced back to God, aren't they? Again, to quote Ferguson, he says, This behavior is a deep gratitude in the face of the saving grace and the continuing activity of God. A grumbling or questioning spirit is an expression of ingratitude to God's providence and of loveliness and pride toward others. 
It is a denial of grace. It is a working against salvation rather than working salvation out into every aspect of our lives. Isn't this the bane of God's people? Not only Israel, but the church. That's why he's bringing this example up, actually, because they're struggling in this area. You could see it through the text. There's some grumbling coming on. There's some disputing coming on in the church. It is the bane of God's people from Philippi to Paris to Prosper. It is found throughout the ages and places. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And, and what, what some theologians say is this, is this is a watershed state of the soul. Those who, who persist in such muttering are not obedient to Christ and His gospel. They are actually rejecting the call to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. If we're not on guard, uh, grumbling can become a way of life with us. Um, the weather is not what we would like it to be. Uh, people don't treat us the way they should. The church leaders don't handle things correctly. And the list can go on and on and on. Uh, several years ago, I, it was a situation with a church. And, and um, as a young man, and he wanted to do some, you know, move on in, in his ministry. And he was going to get support from the church. And things didn't quite work out. Sometimes things don't work out like that. And he was highly offended. And so he began to tell people in the congregation, you know, the pastor and the elders, they've really done me wrong. It caused a huge division in the church. And it was sad. You know why? Because that pastor and that associate minister really had a fantastic relationship before that. And that young man just let the bitterness, the root of bitterness get into his heart. And you just want to go, are you not thinking here what you're doing that's so easy to slip into. So he tells us, in all things, don't grumble and dispute. But on the contrary, he gives us some positive things here. On the positive side, if you will, Paul sums us to give up our grumbling hearts for ones that are blameless and innocent. To walk, to be, and to act like the children of God that we are. We are to be His in our behavior. Why? Not because we're pulling our bootstraps up, but because of the gospel. Because of Christ. Who we are in Christ is to flow from us. He has redeemed us. He has saved us. He is working in us to will and to do. And that should flow out from us. Now you know there's a responsibility here for us or Paul wouldn't be saying this. He would just be saying it's all God. Let go and let God. But he doesn't. There is a responsibility upon us that we can't deny. But again, it's Him that powers it. And, and, and His Christ-like life should flow from us. And what we see is this, this circle where, where it looks like this. I look at that and I go, Lord, help me. Help my unbelief. Help my struggle. Help my strength here. And then what do I do? I look to Christ. A thousand times I look to Christ. And I look to Him and I keep my eyes on Him again and again and again and again. Because why? Because our blamelessness and innocence can only come from Him. In my struggle, in my working out, I look to Him again and again and again. 
ultimately as we are working out our salvation in the power of Christ and, and walk as adopted children of God in the outward display of our Christ nature, we shine in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And that's the way it is and that's the way He meant it to be. We become light shining in a darkness. As a matter of fact, the word here is not an imperative to shine. It's, it's an indicative. You are shining because of who I am. As He lives in our hearts. And as we shine the light, think about it just for a moment. We offer hope. We offer justice. We offer goodness. We offer faithfulness. We offer purity. We offer grace and forgiveness and self-sacrificing love and service. We offer the light of Christ and His kingdom values. What He is saying when He shines through us is this. This is my people. This is my kingdom. Look at it. And what people will do is they'll go, I want that. Or they'll go, get away from me, you Jesus freaks. That's what they do. That's what humanity has always done. But what He calls us to is just to shine. Just to shine. All for His glory and not for our own as we hold fast as well as holding forth the Word of life. We hold fast and hold forth the Word of life. One of um, my favorite modern examples to this, Paul gives us an example here. And to be honest with you, you could probably put all sorts of sins you struggle with in that besides grumbling and complaining. You could. I think he just uses this because he's speaking directly to them. But we could put lots of things in there, right? One of my favorite modern examples in terms of a, a story in, in all the history of Christ's kingdom is, is an article I read in 1998 um, and it's the history. I mean, this is great history of our brothers and sisters in Christ. I just love it as, as they worked out their salvation and trembling and fear and trembling. Um, the illustration is this 34 students from the University of Washington and Western Washington University were dropped off from a jungle bus in Ecuador. For, they were picked up by three guides, and those three guides took those, those 34 students and they hiked them deep into the jungle for 14 hours. And as they went for 14 hours, they came to a river and they had to paddle down even further. So they're deep in the jungle, and they get to know these people. And, and as they're paddling there, they come to the camp of the Waldani. And there, sitting by the campfire, once they arrived, they began asking where the Aka Indian savages were that they read about for the prep of their trip. And Steve Saint is there. And Steve Saint explains that these are those savages. And they look at him like, we've been with these people for days. They're great and wondrous people. What are you talking about? And so Steve basically says, look, ask them about their fathers. And so Steve translates for them, as they ask, what about your father? And one woman begins to look sad and she said, my father was killed and speared to death. The next lady that he asked said, my father was speared and killed. The next lady sitting beside one of the guys 
whom one of the gentlemen had gotten to know, you know, this group of kids had gotten to know this guy, and she pointed and said, that man right there killed my father. And the guy looked beside him, and he's shocked. He's just utterly shocked. He says, I think we've heard enough about this. Can you imagine 34 people out in the middle of the jungle, out in the middle of nowhere, and you've got a bunch of killers standing around you? They're frightened all of a sudden. So then there's this one woman who who usually doesn't speak up, and her name is Dawa. And she says, that man right there came in and killed my father, my brothers, and my mother, and my sibling, as she was nursing the sibling in her cot. And then he took me and made me marry him. Chemo, her husband was sitting beside Steve. And Steve reached over and put his arm around him. And he said, this man killed my father too. Perhaps you heard about the five missionaries in Ecuador in the 50s that were all killed on the beaches of the Wadani tribe. As they explained to these 34 highly educated young people, um, there's the most technical technologically advanced society in all of history. I want you to think about that. How they each sat there and they they learned about how the wives of those men, those missionaries that were killed, went back into those people's midst and shared the Lord with them. And the people talked about how the man maker sent his son to die for a people full of hate fear, and a desire for revenge. I want you to think about how the gospel transforms us. It's true, I tell you. Back in 1990, uh, I think it was 1994, standing at Trinity Presbyterian Church, and Steve Saint comes in with chemo. If you watch the documentary... Uh, my pastor at the time, Steve, and, and Steve Lanham, a dentist, were the first people to go in and take dentistry to the Waldani tribe. There's a documentary about this, and they talk about it. I saw the man who did this. It's true, I tell you. It's true. Now, as great as that story is of transformation... Let me tell you about another story of transformation that is as dear to my heart. And this story of transformation will likely never be written in books or put on film or put in a documentary or probably not, not be known by many outside this room. At least not in this world. But it is no less glorious. Do you understand that? It is no less glorious. Why? Because Hebrews tells us that we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And the story is this. is He is orchestrating you. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
as you struggle in relationships, as you struggle to work out your salvation with fear and trembling in the midst of sin, as you struggle with grace, and you struggle with family, and you struggle with work and culture, you shine like diamonds for His glory. You have to believe that. You have to know that's true. For the joy of the saints who have gone on before us, who have been poured out, as Paul says he is here, as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, for the joy of Christ, may we rejoice in His working in us. Brothers and sisters, for it is glorious. Let us pray.